You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello listeners and welcome to Locally Sourced Science on this chilly December day. I'm Cecil Barnett-Neves and I couldn't escape the lab today so I've constructed my very own radio array from trash I've found lying around the building and cobbled it together with sticky tape. It's pretty impressive given it's a food science building and therefore largely built out of plastic bottles, orange peels and half a drinks can. But hopefully it'll hold out for the show. Talk about green technology. Speaking of which, that nicely segues me into today's scientific topic, the field of computer science. We have a bit of a love-hate relationship when it comes to computer technology. They power the majority of society today, but all of us have complained at least once that a computer is running slow or did entirely the wrong thing. However, as the field evolves, we find new ways of using our discoveries. Technology becomes smaller and more sophisticated at the same time. I remember seeing the Apollo Lunar Module in the National Air and Space Museum in DC some years ago, being explained that the pocket PC that my dad had, yes, an actual pocket PC, contained more computing power than the entire module. Granted, the X5 came a good 30 years after the Lunar Module, but it goes to show just how determined we are to get more out of an ever-shrinking device. Sometimes that's achieved by making the software better like how it's more efficient to write a program where you instruct a specific part of it to loop a few times, instead of tediously writing the whole thing out multiple times over and over. In other cases, it's advances in hardware that spur things on, like how the very first dual-core processors back in 2001 opened the door to today's absolutely staggering 260-core supercomputers, though you won't find one of those in Best Buy. First off, however, have you ever heard of a computer model? As part of my own research work, I figure out how to represent part of reality in its own little virtual world, and then try to predict specific outcomes according to the rules I set. If you have enough information, you could use a computer model to simulate a wide range of scenarios and how they might occur. Now to put a spin on that idea, you may have seen or even used publicly shared bikes. But what happens if most of the users travel in one direction most of the time? Well, that's not so complicated. All a company has to do is collect the bikes and bring them back to the certain spots where people can pick them up from again. But this is where it gets tricky. How would they decide on the best starting points? And what happens when the best place isn't always in the same area? LSS contributor Esther Akusin finds out how computer models can crack this problem. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. This past summer, I was in New York City and saw lots of people riding city bikes from a bike-sharing company. My first thought was, are they crazy? Even though they were riding in bike lanes, it seemed intimidating to ride alongside the infamous New York City traffic. My next thought was, how does the bike-sharing company manage to have their bikes where city residents need them? To find out more, I spoke with a computer scientist who studies this real-world problem. Dr. David Schmoyes is professor in the Cornell School of Operations Research and Information Engineering. He is also a faculty member in the Department of Computer Science and is the associate director of the Institute for Computational Sustainability. He is an author on the paper, Analytics and Bikes, Riding Tandem with Motivate to Improve Mobility, 
The other authors are Daniel Freund, Shane Henderson, and Owen O'Mahony of Cornell. The paper was published in October 2019 in the Informs Journal on Applied Analytics. The primary focus of Schmoy's research is on the design and analysis of efficient algorithms for discrete optimization problems, such as the operational logistics and design of bike-sharing systems. I started by asking, what are discrete optimization problems? So discrete optimization problems uh, can be viewed in the following way. Imagine that I have a network. I have a collection of objects, and I want to just maybe make a selection from them. I want to figure out how to allocate capacity to them. I want to make decisions, but they're not decisions that are of the form of how much do I do this or how much do I that, but basically I can either do it or I don't do it, or I can put 16 bikes at the station or I could put 15 bikes at the station, but I can put 15 and a half bikes at a, at, a, at a given station. So in that sense, there are discrete levels that we're making decisions amongst, and that's what gives rise to the optimization problem. What kinds of problems did Motivate ask you and your team to solve? What are the right metrics to think about performance? So if you... I'll look at a system like Motivates. They, when they opened, they had something like uh, 12,000 docks across 300 plus stations um, and 6,000 bikes. So you had you know, about half as many bikes as, as, as docks. And now it's you know, nine o'clock in the morning. The, the, the city is at work. Uh, and uh, you want to have a sense of, well, are the bikes where I have demand for that? How, am, how well am I serving demand? And just to have some notion of how do I capture that the system is really doing, is in a good state or in a bad state? And, and, and how do I then maybe overnight readjust the positioning of bikes so that it's optimized to be ready for the start of the day at 5, 6 a.m. in the morning? Um, that How do I just think about the logistical issues? And then how do I... Um, configure the system so as to take most advantage of that. And what is a data-driven approach? So underlying the model and how we think about the metric is that for every station, for every 10-minute interval of the day, what we calculated was the estimated frequency of a user showing up at that station and wanting to rent and the estimated frequency of a user showing up and wanting to dock a bike. So we use the historical data in a relatively simple but 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 still having some level of sophistication in it uh, in order to determine these rates and that that this has to do with a, a model of stochastic processes that are called Poisson processes and these are so-called time-varying Poisson processes that guide give us overall a a, a stochastic description of a typical day in the life of, of, of the overall cities, you know, let's say focusing on New York, for example, on New York system. And so going from the historical data to having a model of what we think is sort of characteristic is what we, when we say a, a, a data-driven, because that gives us the model, and then we're using that model to then compute what are the right decisions of, yes, this station has too many bikes, this station has, has too few bikes. The original system was built without any knowledge of how people were going to use it. So another way in which we had an effect uh, was that we built sort of a, a second level of optimization models that as the system is to be redesigned or expanded, 
what's the most effective way to add additional stations and ad add additional docks or to potentially move some of the docks that may have been at this station and being underutilized and being moved to augment the capacity at another station um, and, and improve the overall system performance. Did your team come up with any algorithms that didn't work well? So there's actually a, a, a nice story that in our initial view, we, when I talked about the data-driven approach, I said that we estimate the demand um, at each station for each 15 minutes. And this is a general modeling principle that we teach to our, our undergraduates that start with as you know, simple a model as you think might work and sort of study how that works and, and make the model richer and, 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 and more intricate as, as you see the need arises. And uh, so we started out believing that it would be sufficient to estimate um, really for the entire morning rush hour, what's the demand rate uh, at uh, both for renting and, and for returning at each station across the just average across the entire morning rush hour. That, but it turned out that there was one station that up until 8 a.m., there was a big inflow of bikes being parked at that station. But after 8 a.m., there was a big outflow of, of bikes being rented at that station. And so we didn't expect that behavior, and our models did badly because it would just sort of assume the sort of average of inflow and outflow and actually show there wasn't much activity at all because we just averaged some big positive numbers and some big negative numbers. And lo and behold, the average came out close to zero. It turns out that that was Bellevue Hospital. Um, and there was a shift change at, at 8 a.m. And so, yes, the, before 8 a.m., there were a lot of people arriving to work. And after 8 a.m., there were a lot of people leaving from work. So, uh, you know, we, we then refined the model and said, OK, no, we need to have more precise estimates on, on every 10-minute uh, interval of just knowing what the rental rate and demand rates were. And is there anything that you would like the public to know about optimization algorithms and the data-driven approach to solving problems? I mean, and sometimes, you know, it's nice to think about the optimization models, but sometimes it's sort of also asking the right question um, and sort of figuring out what, you know, how should you think about the, the system? That was Dr. David Schmoyes, professor in the Cornell School of Operations Research and Information Engineering, talking about how bike-sharing companies use computing to figure out how, why, where, and when to move their bikes. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. Hello, science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and today's science interview is going to explore the wonderful and weird world of quantum computing. Back in October, quantum computers made a big splash when Google announced that they had achieved something called quantum supremacy. The gist of their breakthrough is this. The quantum computer they designed performed a task quicker than the world's largest supercomputer ever could. Today's guest and our guide in the quantum world is Cornell University professor Dr. Peter McMahon who has extensive experience in all things computers. Dr. McMahon holds degrees in physics and electrical engineering and has researched everything from quantum information processing to radio astronomy to how to engineer different types of physical platforms to be better computers. Dr. McMahon is going to walk us through quantum computers. We'll cover what they are, how they are made, how they differ from normal, also called classical computers, and what they are actually good for. First, however, we're going to talk about what quantum actually is. Dr. McMahon, my first question for you is, in the context of quantum computing, what does quantum mean? 
the quantum and quantum computing refers to quantum mechanics, uh, and that itself refers to the physical theory of nature uh, that describes the behavior of physical systems in our, in our world and beyond that uh, is, as far as we can tell, is one of the most fundamental theories of how things behave. And uh, you typically don't experience quantum mechanics directly in your everyday life with everyday mm-hmm. objects like something like a baseball, but uh, typically when you shrink down to very small sizes, then the laws of quantum mechanics become important and you start seeing behavior that is different than uh, Newtonian mechanics as you uh, come across in, say, middle school or high school. Okay. Dr. McMahon just introduced us to the quantum world, the laws of nature that govern how subatomic particles behave. Key particles in quantum computing are electrons, which en masse give us current, and photons, which give us light. In the next portions of the interview, Dr. McMahon will explain how quantum computers work and how they differ from other types of computers. So how does quantum computers, how do those computers differ from a classical computer? So it turns out that uh, in quantum mechanics, there are some phenomena that are allowed or can happen, and they don't have... Uh, an analog in in the classical realm, mm-hmm. and so the 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 field is essentially around how can we control precisely systems that are quantum mechanical that behave quantum mechanically, and how can we harness their quantum mechanical behavior to perform computations that are more efficient than what is possible classically. Okay, so looking at your website. You've mentioned that your lab actually builds computers. Um, So you're looking into building quantum computers um, and also looking into building classical computers that are, as far as I know, they're pretty niche, such as neuromorphic or photonic computers. Mm -hmm. So in in terms of actually building the computer, how does the process of building a quantum computer differ from building a a classical computer? So there's a sort of broad field of unconventional computation. Mm -hmm. We have quantum computing, but also non-quantum, but also physical computing. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's two directions that I'm personally very interested in are photonic computing and uh, neuromorphic computing. And in some sense, there's a possibility for interplay between all three of these areas, quantum, neuromorphic, and photonic. They can each exist separately. You can build a neuromorphic computer that is neither quantum nor photonic, but you can also build computers that are combinations of these. You can build a photonic quantum computer. And that's, a, I think, a very nice example because it's something that uh, many groups are actually working towards. Uh, it turns out that, uh, that photons, particles of light, are a very nice system to work with if you want to be able to control quantum particles because we have ways to generate individual photons and we have ways to manipulate them, i.e. to perform operations on them. And so photons uh, are one possible way that you can build a quantum computer. Your photons form the quantum analog of bits in a classical computer. Uh, In a quantum computer, these are quantum versions of bits, or called quantum bits, or qubits, Mm -hmm. uh, and photons can can be made to behave as very nice qubits. So you can have a photonic quantum computer. That's not the only way to make a quantum computer. 
there are many other possible ways that people are exploring, uh, including, for example, working with single electrons or single ions. Uh, and there's a, a broad array of possible technologies that you could use or physical systems you could use to implement quantum computers, and uh, each of them have advantages and disadvantages. However, uh, as you mentioned in the question, we could be doing things that are photonic that are not uh, quantum, and one might very reasonably ask, well, what is the what is the difference when we are doing a, building a photonic computer that is not a photonic quantum computer? Yeah. And typically, what's happening there is that in the in the quantum case, uh, we are working with small numbers or individual photons, whereas in the case where we're building classical photonic computers, we don't need to worry as much about working at extremely low photon numbers, we can represent the information with many thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of photons. It, would that be a better system then, if you have more photons, does that equal more computational efficiency or power? So there's quite some subtlety involved here. If you have individual photonic qubits, then the more you have in some sense, the better. Okay. So if you could uh, create a, a, a system where you had many millions of photons where each photon acted as a quantum bit, uh, then this would be great. You would have uh, uh, at least a good start towards a large-scale photonic quantum computer. However, as you add more photons, it turns out to be more and more difficult to, uh, to protect the system from noise and I to see. keep the system behaving quantum mechanically. Hmm. Uh, and there's a notion of a sort of quantum to classical transition which is fundamentally tied to the same kind of thing that causes us to experience a baseball as a classical object, even though it's made out of atoms and electrons, it's made up of kind of Avogadro's number of atoms. So in some sense, the baseball is a quantum mechanical object, sure. but it doesn't behave very quantum mechanically to mm -hmm. us. It behaves like a classical object. And why is this? Well, as you add more and more atoms, uh, if you don't uh, spend a lot of effort to carefully engineer things so that they are protected from the environment and from noise, they start to act classically. Wow. And so you would like to be able to build a quantum computer that comprises of many millions of photons, each acting as a qubit, but that turns out to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. So mostly uh, where people are at the moment is working with systems with small handfuls of qubits, uh, maybe in the ranges of between 2 and 100 Mm -hmm. uh, and working very hard to protect them so that they continue to act quantum mechanically. Hello again. If you're just joining us, you've been listening to Dr. McMahon, quantum computing expert at Cornell University. Dr. McMahon has been telling us about key differences between quantum computers and normal or classical computers. One of the most major differences Dr. McMahon mentioned is the quantum qubit versus the classical bit. In classical computers, a bit is a single unit of information. Bits can exist in two states, which are represented as ones and zeros. In classical computers, the states are usually current on and current off. Groupings of bits are called machine code, as in the language that computers understand. Every action that you make on your computer gets translated into machine code before it is executed. In quantum computers, qubits can exist as the spin of an electron or polarity of a photon, since both of these have two binary states. 
However, the key difference between qubits and normal bits is that qubits can simultaneously exist in both states. A key outcome of this is that qubits can hold more information. Dr. McMakin will next tell us how this different property of qubits leads to different types of computation. So simulating the physics of a quantum computer, um, we've discussed how that would be incredibly difficult for a classical computer. Are there other benefits that people say uh, quantum computing will give us? That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. And it actually comes back to the most natural answer to that comes back to almost the, the founding of the field of quantum computing, which was founded in the early 1980s, mm. Uh, where there were suggestions from Richard Feynman and Yuri Manin independently that uh, a quantum mechanical machine may be able to compute things much more efficiently than uh, a classical computer. In particular, Feynman's motivation for this was that simulating quantum systems turns out to be very difficult. It's uh, not necessarily obvious why that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that it is very difficult, though. And, uh, and Feynman's motivation for uh, exploring quantum computation was if we find it so difficult to simulate quantum systems so that we can understand physical processes in nature, why don't we turn this around and make a computer that is quantum mechanical itself, and then it should fi have an easier time. Feynman was not proposing this uh, for a quantum computational supremacy demonstration, he was proposing it because there are many problems in physics and consequently in chemistry where you would really like to be able to simulate the <laughs> physics of some quantum mechanical system and one couldn't do it. And so a, a hypothesized and it seems relatively likely first application of near-term quantum computers is in performing quantum simulation. It turns out that there are a number of other things that people have thought about that quantum computers might be able to help us do faster, uh, but that have much less sort of intuitive reason for why a quantum computer should help. Mm -hmm. uh, there, this include uh, Shaw's factoring algorithm, where Shaw invented an algorithm that, uh, when run on a quantum computer, should allow us to... Uh, factor a number far faster than is possible classically, which is a very interesting application because the basis of a large part of current uh, cryptography schemes relies on the fact that, th that factoring numbers is hard. Uh, there's also a number of interesting algorithms related to uh, linear algebra and machine learning. And these are also places where, in certain circumstances, it seems like we can potentially get large speed-ups from the quantum computer. Uh, or a, from a quantum computer. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. McMahon. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You just heard Locally Sourced Science's interview with Dr. Peter McMahon, professor in the Cornell Department of Applied and Engineering Physics. If you missed any part of the interview, head to our website, www.locallysourcedscience.org, to listen to the full show at any time. I'm Liz Mahood, and thank you for listening. Hello, this is Patricia Waldron from Locally Source Science with this week's science news headlines. Using light reflected from distant planets, astronomers at Cornell are working on ways to identify which of the 4,000 planets in the Milky Way might contain life. Zifan Lin, a Cornell senior, 
working with Dr. Lisa Kaltenegger, used high-resolution light data to learn about the conditions that exist on two of the closest potentially habitable exoplanets, Proxima b and TRAPPIST-1e. They detected water, methane, and oxygen in their atmospheres, all of which are expected to be found on planets capable of supporting life. These observations help lay the groundwork for when new advanced ground-based telescopes are built that will help us look for signs of life on planets outside our solar system. One such telescope, named the Extremely Large Telescope, is currently under construction in northern Chile's Atacama Desert. The new study appears in Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. In a story closer to home, Cornell ecologist Dr. Marin Vitusik and her lab members have been studying a population of tree swallows living in the Ithaca area. By setting out boxes for the beautiful blue, gray, and white birds to nest in, they can monitor the birds throughout their lives as they return year after year. By analyzing 30 years of tree swallow data, graduate student Jennifer Euling found that young swallows that experience especially cold temperatures, which may indicate tough times and limited food, carry that stress with them into adulthood. Birds that were incubated in colder weather had higher levels of stress hormones when they were sitting on their own eggs. Previous studies have shown that these same hormones can impact how successful a bird will be at reproducing. While more research is necessary, the findings hint that shifting temperatures due to climate change will likely affect future stress levels for the birds and may indirectly impact how many offspring they produce. The researchers published their findings in the Journal of American Ecology. Next time you find a tick, you might want to pop it in the mail to Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University. He and his lab members are testing ticks submitted by the general public for various tick-borne diseases like Lyme, Babesia, and Ehrlichia. Since July, he has received more than 1,900 samples, with ticks arriving from every county in the state. In a recent report, he says that one-third of the ticks he tested had at least one infection, and about one-fourth carried the bacterium that causes Lyme disease. Some ticks even tested positive for multiple infections, such as one that had both Lyme and Powassan, a rare but potentially deadly virus that causes inflammation in the brain. Numbers of ticks and cases of tick-borne diseases are growing in the state, and this citizen science initiative is part of Thangamani's larger research to figure out what's behind this trend. Thangamani's tick testing is on hold over the holidays, but if you find a tick that you want tested, you can put it in the freezer or store it in rubbing alcohol and send it in after January 6th. And that's it for this week's science news from the Finger Lakes. I'm Luisa Torres, and this is your science events calendar. The exhibition Arachnophilia, a passion for spiders, is on display in the second floor of Cornell's Mann Library through January 31st. Love them or hate them, spiders are all around us. This exhibit invites you to the fascinating and sometimes strange world of spiders, showcasing their amazing abilities, diversity, and potential usefulness to human medicine and agriculture. On Friday, December 20th, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., come celebrate the longest night of the year and the official start of winter at the Welcome Center of Cornell Botanical Gardens. There will be a presentation about the natural history of plants associated with wintertime, including oak, holly, ivy, mistletoe, and evergreens. Weather permitting, the event will conclude with a candlelight visit to the Winter Garden to sing some plant-related carols. Fashion and Feathers is a new exhibition that features a display of fashion items alongside bird specimens, illustrations, and video footage. 
The exhibit is a collaboration between the Cornell Costume and Textile Collection, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and the Cornell University Museum of Vertebrates. Birds are an endless source of inspiration for fashion designers. However, they are also exploited for their feathers, and some are nearly hunted to extinction for their plumes. This exhibition highlights the beauty and tragedy of feathers in fashion and shows the influence of birds on dress across the globe. The exhibit will be on display through January 20th. Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation Come explore the ancient origins of bees, their immense diversity, and the ever-evolving drama between flowers and pollinators. Get an up-close view of bee anatomy and behaviors while learning how different species nest and interact. Find out how humans depend on pollination for food, especially here in New York. Explore high-resolution macrophotography, fossil and modern bee specimens, videos, interactives, and engaging activities for younger visitors. Become an advocate for bees and discover how they impact our world and how you can help protect them. You can enjoy this exhibition at the Museum of the Earth through June 2020. I'm Luisa Torres, and this was your science calendar. And that's our show. Today's episode of Locally Sourced Science featured content from Esther Kusin, Liz Mahood, Patricia Waldron, and Luisa Torres. We'd like to thank Drs. David Schmoy and Peter McMahon. Music was provided by Cheche Giannotti and Kevin McLeod. Locally Sourced Science is broadcast from WRFI in downtown Ithaca, and maybe soon the world's first satellite made from fermented cabbages and tinfoil if my next plan pans out. In the meantime, though, I'm Cecil Barnett-Eves, and for now, science out.